Judaism was the first uh, linear story in history. Uh, Thomas Cahill talks about this in The Gifts of the Jews. And so the Jesus story is is really the only understanding of that that I think fully makes sense. That you can have a loving God who is who loves us and didn't cause the, the problem, but he figures out a way to still be the hero and overcome the villain by by actually providing a way for the villain to be transformed. Hello, hello, hello. I am curious when you have been told what to believe about atonement, what does that word mean? Like literally, that word is, it's not a big word, but it's a funky word. Like we don't use it, but it matters because it affects the way that we view people, humans, policies, politics, communities, families, churches, workplaces, insert noun here. And with that in mind, I brought on Mako Nagasawa he is from the, and I'm going to get this wrong. He's from the Anastasis Center. And Mako, I'm sure you're listening, and I'm sure I can't get that name right because in my brain, it's Anastasis. And I also know that that's probably wrong. But he does a lot of things. He's written a couple books, and he has some amazing blogs and teachings. You can find them all over the internet. But it, I came across him through a, uh, a Facebook friend. And man, I just quickly fell in love with what he was doing, started reading some of his writing, invite him on the show to talk about atonement. And this is the result of that. And I don't want to be too long with this intro because it's a little bit longer of an episode, but I really enjoy the episode. Before that, though, I want to say thank you. There has been three or four people that are supporting the show have added into the community there over on Patreon. And I'm very thankful for each and every one of you. You will, you know, hear that plea in my fake, quote unquote, air quotes here, ad in the middle of the episode, right at a pivotal moment. This week, I really smiled and laughed literally out loud at my kitchen table as I edited right where I put that in. I can't wait for you to hear it. Anyway, all of that to the side. And here we go. So I cope the way you build a bridge with the cords that they suspended with. Nine inch nail cement bricks. And hope that at the end of this, I made my peace. It's more good than bad out here. I feel your good for my soul. It's more good than bad out here. I feel your good for my soul. Recording in progress. Here we go. We did it. All right, here we are. This is always the hardest part, isn't it, Mako? Like it's always, it's just beginning. So here we go. Mako Nagasawa, right? Did it? Yes. Excellent. Welcome to the show. Um, We we were already starting out correct because I got the names right, which is the most stressful part of any episode. It doesn't matter what the name is. But I'm glad that you're here. Thanks for saying yes to some random idiot on the internet, on on the Twitter, which is a great place to meet people. You know, that's, you know, I could have been selling you a timeshare and you would have never known. 
Um, that would be much less fun, but I'm super <laughs> glad you reached out. Seth. <laughs> yeah. And so what's funny is I, I saw you from um, Rick Pidcock, who writes a lot of stuff for Baptist News Global. And I can't even remember what the post was because once someone had posted a screenshot of something you had said to something that someone else said, I don't even remember. Um, I, I fell down a rabbit hole and was like, all right, time out. Enough of the rabbit hole. Let's just let me get in the hole with Mako. So <laughs> when people are unfamiliar with you and you try to explain like what or who you are or why you are, what is that? Well, um, online, I, I'm, a, I'm a displaced Californian. I now live in Boston with my wife and kids. The, uh, the, the online content I tend to put out most has to do with uh, early church thinking and, and action about Christian restorative justice and healing atonement. And okay. I'm the director of the Anastasis Center for Christian Education and Ministry. And um, I've, I founded uh, this organization. We have a small team and uh, it's a lot of fun. And we put out curriculum and do training on those two subjects, usually restorative justice and healing atonement. Yeah. Do you miss California? I do. I, I really miss um, the Pacific Ocean and good Korean and Mexican food. Mm, I do miss good Mexican food. So I'm from Texas and I now live in Virginia and, and the Mexican food here is, is bland. When I take my family yeah. home to Texas, they're like, it's too spicy. Tastes different. I'm like, but, but it's actually Mexican food. It's not whatever the heck you call it. <laughs> right. Garbage. Authentic Mexican food is... Yeah. It's well, it's Tex-Mex, but it's more authentic than whatever the heck they're serving just down the street. It's it's way more authentic than that. Right. You talk about atonement theory, which is a topic that I, or you talk about a lot of things. Um, abortion as well. I bought your book the other day. I haven't began reading it yet. Um, so but much. with all yeah. of the things on the news about this, that, and the other, and Supreme Court justices, and Roe v. Wade, and all that stuff, I was like, well, let me, he wrote a book. Let me just buy this one, because I'm already looking at his stuff, so... I don't know if yeah. you touch on that in there, but I'm gonna find out here soon, but not while you're here today. Um, okay. So as I was diving into everything, I realized that your view of atonement seems to be entirely different than I think what the default quote unquote orthodoxy of the United States is. Um, and I don't know if it's the default orthodoxy of Christianity as a whole, um, but it's been like five or six years since I talked about orthodoxy, um, which at that time I, I had Brad Jersak on, um, and we talked about uh, a kind of a Christus Victor model, Yes, which yes. I'm not sure what the differences or the similarities between your two views are or not, but what is the only correct interpretation of atonement theory? <laughs> the earliest one, <laughs> uh, as expressed by Irenaeus, uh, the, the most important second cent century writer, uh, writing um, a writer of Christian thought. He was a bishop, a point uh, who was mentored by uh, Polycarp of Smyrna, and, uh, and, and who was mentored by John, the writer of the gospel and revelation. So, I mean, this guy was, you know, two degrees of separation from Jesus. Yeah. And Athanasius, who defended the, the deity, of, the divinity of Jesus, gave us the, uh, or, and defended the Nicene Creed, and uh, what they believed was about atonement was that Jesus shared in our fallen human nature that we might share in his healed human nature. They had a medical understanding of atonement uh, and uh, that, that he took on our fallen human nature in order to fight his way through to faithfulness and, and then 
that faithfulness impacted his human nature. Like he invested the Holy Spirit into every cell in his humanity and killed the thing that was killing us in his death and then in his resurrection, uh, emerged with a God-soaked, God-drenched new humanity, which he shares with us by his spirit. Right. That understanding is the, the earliest understanding of atonement, and it's um, that we have on paper, and that um, undergirds Christus Victor, because it, it emphasizes Jesus's victory over sin or, or sinfulness, which, which is logically prior to a victory over Satan, a victory over death, a victory over uh, even the law, the Sinai Covenant, although that's not quite what they would say about it. But um, if we're if we're thinking in terms of how Luther, um, Martin Luther articulated Christus Victor, then yeah, there's a logical sequence. So yeah. that that's the that is the best way to think about atonement. Yeah, and that's the only one that's accurate. All the others are wrong. Correct. <laughs> Well, the uh, what it, it depends on what you mean by all the others. The, so the I, most I common, say, I think, is what you would hear preached from the pulpit and the bulk of, well, at least not the most common in the United States, because this this podcast is listened to, I think, on every continent. So for me, um, you were born depraved, and because of that, you owe a debt, and if you yeah. don't pay it, you're going to burn forever, which I also don't think that I believe that hell is a place that we go to. I think it's a place that we, you and I make. Um, yeah. with the consequences of our actions. But that's, a, again, a different conversation. Um, and, and so because of that, um, someone needs to show up basically and make the mortgage payment for my sin so that I can go to live in a better house. Um, right. Which seems to be entirely different from what you just said because you used words healing, which is not in what is preached in many churches each Sunday here in the United States. Um, correct? Or am I hearing, am I, am I wrong? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So um, C.S. Lewis talks about how um, punishment and debt payment are, are really kind of the same thing. They're a transposition of, of, of um, conceptual categories. Uh, others would use the court with the Western courtroom metaphor, right, which is the God is a judge. We have broken his law. And so we. Uh, he, the punishment is his death. Jesus interposes, he enters the courtroom and interposes himself. And so he takes the punishment and, and so the, instead of us. And, and so that's how God as a judge can forgive us. The, the idea that's called penal substitution. Mm -hmm. And what you describe is, is that uh, I think what C.S. Lewis calls fiscal substitution, right? Like that we owe a debt of obedience or a debt of suffering. And God is a currency exchanger. So if he doesn't get repaid in, in the currency of obedience, he will extract payment from us mm. in the currency of suffering. And, and, and essentially, yeah, it points to the same idea. I don't think that anybody's ever called it a fiscal substitution, but when you said it, I realized how much of what I do for a living has bled into past memories of, of, of atonement. Um, yeah, working at a bank, like that literally makes a lot of sense. Um, nobody's ever said that out loud to me. I'm actually kind of, guilt isn't the word, embarrassed that I never recognized it before now. Um, yeah, I guess. So 
you were raised then in this Iranian version of, of atonement theory, correct? Is that is that what you call home? Has this always been your view, or where well, did no, you begin? I, 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 I mean, I came to Jesus in the context of a, um, a Japanese free Methodist church out in California, um, still connected to that community, although I live out here in Boston. Uh, went to went to college, and uh, I had mentors who were five-point Calvinists, and uh, that's when I started to ask a lot of questions. I, I mean, hearing uh, about the, the quote-unquote five points of Calvinism was interesting. I think I had the most difficulty with um, the idea of limited atonement, because that was the, the, the most difficult one to square with, with Scripture, uh, you know, that God so loved the world, that uh, in, in uh, he desires that that no one be uh, lost, and, and and there's all kinds of you know things that would indicate that what, God would not limit the atonement on His end. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, how could that be? So, uh, you know, basically, to make a long answer short, it got exposed to the Calvinism Arminianism debates. Thought. Mm, this seems like you're just selecting verses and <laughs> uh, and then explaining why you could do that. Uh, I'm not particularly compelled by that because I really enjoyed scripture itself. And so exegesis or, or biblical studies was what I really enjoyed. I enjoyed preaching, expository preaching. And when you do that, I, I you know, I, I felt like I, I want to know, like, what is the emotional response that Jesus or, or Paul was calling for because penal substitution, uh, which is what we describe the courtroom, the Western courtroom mm -hmm. metaphor, um, evokes survival emotions. Right? It's I I uh, feel guilt and fear, and then after considering Jesus, I feel relief and gratitude, and and basically my my entire survival was at stake, and now I. Uh, it, it's not. And so I was asked to, to teach once uh, Romans 6, and I found that I, I didn't know what Paul was saying uh, because uh, of different um, things. I'm not sure how much you want me to go into the detail here. All of it. But, all of it. As, oh, far okay. as, you, as far as you want to. There are no time limits on this show. One was three hours long, which I edited into two parts. Um, oh, my. Yeah, that, so I don't want to do that. Um, so I literally looked at my memory card and was like, so you have five minutes. After that, I don't know what happens when the memory card is full. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so you yeah, go in as, as much or as little as you want. Um, I have a few parts that I really had the biggest questions on. But go as far as deep into Romans 6 as you want. Because uh, Romans, I think, is a text um, that many in the church use as a weapon Um of, right. of a way to be as, as opposed anyway, anyway, so go as, as much into that right. as you'd like. Sure. So I, I was asked to teach Romans six, one through 11, where Paul says, uh, you have died and risen with Christ. And, uh, that's the motivation for not continuing to sin. And I thought, boy, this is, this is a different motivation than what I would expect because if penal substitution were true, he would say, because Jesus died instead of you. But here he says, Jesus died ahead of you, and you died and rose with him. At the time, I was um, 
I, I thought I was going to be a high school teacher. And anecdotally, I'd heard different ways that teachers motivate students that struggle with um with their academics. And so, you know, one of, one of the worst ways that, that teachers can speak to struggling students is to say, what are these grades? Are you dumb? You know, or also not effective is what are these grades? Don't you know how much I'm sacrificing for you? Mm. Uh, because that, that just builds resentment on the, yeah. on the part of the students. The, the best thing for a teacher to say is what are these grades? This isn't who you are. That's just the best thing to say in, in different ways and inflections, of course. But the, the idea is you can separate the behavior from the identity on, on some level, right? right. Like on, on a fundamental level. Uh, and it doesn't mean that the, the person is not responsible, but it means that there is something different within the person and identity obligation becomes the, the, uh, the motivation uh, to, to do better, to try harder. And I could see that the Apostle Paul was using that motivation, but in a much richer, deeper, more profound way. He was saying, you've changed. This isn't who you are. And so uh, he, he doesn't say, don't you know how much you know suffering Jesus took uh, or how much he sacrificed or the, the pain that he endured, all of which was kind of haunting uh, me for different reasons. And <clears throat> I, and then I just, I said, this is, this is not what I expected. Uh, yeah. How, how does he motivate his, you know, his uh, Christians, his churches as a pastor in other letters? And I found that in Ephesians, Colossians uh, two and three, um, uh, you know, Second uh, Corinthians three, four, and five. I mean, he is really landing on, and and working from a foundation of your identity is different, and 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 so I thought, okay, um, how do people then do evangelism? Do they use penal substitution in evangelism? And I so I read all of the Book of Acts and thought they don't. No one uses that language, that, that, those categories, and they're not looking to evoke that emotion. Uh, so they, they might make an argument from creation or fulfilled scripture or whatever, um, but it's different. And, you know, there are two places, maybe uh, Galatians 3 and 1 Corinthians 1, where you could interpret Paul as if he had done evangelism using penal substitutionary atonement, like you better escape the wrath of God in, in a retributive justice sense. And, and in Jesus interpose himself, that's the only way out. But really no, because what he says about the resurrection is you have to participate in the resurrection. And the only way to do that is to participate also in Christ's death. So you die and rise with Christ. Same thing as, as Romans six. So yeah. from the standpoint of, look, I, I loved mentoring people uh, i got a chance to preach every now and then and so i thought i i guess i don't really have to believe in penal substitution uh it, it's not clearly taught in the text it, it's more superimposed on it and um and you know there's other things as you mentioned other parts of romans get bent out of shape by by some people who want to defend that paradigm yeah 
Yeah. But that, that was how I started down this journey. And about 10 years later, I, I took a class in theology and my teacher had been kind of himself been a student of uh, T.F. Torrance and J.B. Torrance. They had studied under Karl Barth, who, and they were all reading Athanasius. Hmm. They were all realizing that there were certain shortcomings in the Protestant Reformation and Athanasius had not gotten enough attention and uh, they were all trying to go back to Athanasius because he was a consistent Trinitarian thinker. Mm. Yeah. When I, so I, people know that I do the podcast as a, as a hobby. Like it's, it's not a, a kept secret, including at work and some of my clients even know, et cetera. And so they'll ask questions from time to time. When I talk about atonement, I, I will say what I believe, which is kind of a, a blend of a lot of different things because there's so many things rattling around in my head, but it is not what I was raised with. And they'll always say, well, that's just beautiful. Like that seems, that seems good, which, yeah, that does seem like the gospel. Um, yeah. Funny. But I don't, and, and then that's it though. They, they go on about believing what they've always believed. So how... How would how would one, if you wanted to talk about atonement and new lights, dive into some easy reading that can begin to get your feet wet, or to, if you're a toddler in this way of thinking, um, you know how would how would someone begin to dive into that? Because um, I'm not real sure how we got to where we're at, at least in the Western Church. Like, I it doesn't make any sense why you would take something good and be like, you know what we could do to this. We'll make it horrible. We could make it a horror <laughs> flick. This would be amazing. Here's here's how we're going to sell it to people. We're gonna we're gonna make them so terrified um, right. that they'll have to say yes instead of look at it and wonder and be like, absolutely, that is yes. Why would I not partner in to becoming a new thing like that? So, where would you direct people to to kind of begin down that down that work? Well, I tried to to make a lot of material accessible and easy to read up on my organization's website, mm. and so. Uh, anastasiscenter.org mm. is, is the place that I would encourage people to go. I, I could break it down further depending on people's interest. Okay. Um, so, you know, if, if you're someone who would really like to see this in scripture, then um, check out our, our notes on Matthew or Luke and, and also Hebrews, because what Jesus did with the human nature that he took on that's what the, that story is about. And, and so I would refer to that. Uh, if, if you're looking to, to understand kind of the, the journey of a human being and human becoming uh, throughout Scripture, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of notes related to that. Um, I think because of Augustine and his influence mediated through Martin Luther and John Calvin, we tend to think of human nature as relatively fixed. And as you mentioned, the, the, uh, the depravity doctrine um, is, is that we, we can only sin. Um, That's a I, lie. That's just a right. Lie. Just I a mean, lie. It's, it is. It's I don't mean to cut you off. Way, it's just a lie. It, and and it's, it's a way to be emotionally unintelligent, yeah. you know, yeah. when it comes to actual human relationships, it's, it's a way of dismissing any residual, well, uh, the, the image of God in, in us, um, that it produces that it's a way of God maintaining 
kind of a, a touch point with us and, and continuing to call out to us. And, and it's why we, we actually do demonstrate love and beauty and, and interest in justice and goodness and order and all these things. So we just can't dismiss that. There's a very rich tradition there that uh, you could call it, you could call it Jewish virtue ethics or Christian virtue ethics. The, mm-hmm. the idea that um, our, our choices shape our own human nature, that we are human beings and human becomings. And, and so the, I, I think there's great promise in neuroscience and what neuroscience and, and Christian faith are, are doing um, or, or the intersection point of those two um, areas of engagement, because neuroscience tells us that, you know, if uh, that our choices and, and also the things done to us actually do shape our neurology, mm-hmm. our, our neural circuits, yeah. and, and that influences what I want to do tomorrow. It, it's not deterministic, but it, it does uh, strongly reinforce this virtue ethics paradigm. Uh, I would say that if you're looking for early church material, probably the easiest thing is to read Athanasius's On the Incarnation. It's a wonderful book, uh, very easy to read. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a beautiful introduction to that. And if you want to see parallels, like just how to understand atonement in this patristic paradigm conceptually, there's there's all kinds of stories and analogies and illustrations that I've tried to collect. So, for example, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you know, this is Frodo taking on the ring, struggling against it, and then trying to cast it into the fire. I mean, Tolkien was was creating a parallel to Jesus. Jesus took on human nature, struggled against it, and actually was successful at casting it into the fire in a manner of speaking. Um, the fire of the Holy Spirit just throughout his life. And and then, again, overcoming uh, the, the evil or the fallenness uh, and the sinfulness that, that had become embedded into human nature, that yes, it influenced us towards sin and selfishness and self-centeredness. It's not the only thing that's true about us, yeah. but it needed to be overcome and human nature needed to be healed. So I'd say that if you're interested in a more practitioner's uh, standpoint from uh, evangelism or Bible study uh, materials are up on the website. And, and also this leads into a whole different restorative justice paradigm for Christian social ethics and social justice. Yeah. And that's really important because our, uh, our society, especially in the U.S., is modeled on the, on the or based on the principle of retributive justice, not restorative justice, or or to put it in full terms, meritocratic retributive justice, mm. where it's it's all about what you can do as an individual, yeah. to what you merit or demerit, yeah. and that is not the actual biblical definition of justice, both in the Hebrew and the Greek terms and so so there's a lot of application yeah. there. yeah that's one of the things i wanted to talk to you about is the way that that uh the way that our view of atonement influences our politics and our policies and the way that we live but before i ask that um you said a yes. couple of things there and then one of the resources on your website if you could just in brief like one two minutes 
walk me through why it's a sentence that exists. So there's a part on circumcision and atonement, which is not a sentence before I read it. And for those that haven't read it, like they hear me say that again, I'll say it again for that person in the back that wasn't listening, yes. that has zoned out circumcision and atonement. Why is that? Why do the, that anyway, why is that a thing? Like how, how would somebody listening that hasn't read it be like, wait, what, how, why, when? Like, I don't know if that makes, you know, anyway, I, I yes. can't, I don't know how to say it better than that. Do you remember like last year I had all those weird ad breaks, like it would just randomly be something? We're not doing that. Instead, I thought I'd do this. I need your help if you're able to. Head on over to the website for the show. There are two things that you can do. One is you head over to the website, you click the Patreon button or support button, I forget what I call it, and you jump in there. Those people help make the show a thing so that you can listen to it right now. Two, the easier one, you could just leave a rating and a review on the podcast app of choice that you currently use. Either one of those is fine, but I would love it if you would do either one, specifically the rating and reviewing. It's an exponential thing that the algorithms pick it up, and that's just math. It's just compounding on top of itself. Anyway, all that to say, that was it. That was the ad break, and now we're going to get back into it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, well, let's let's start with this. Jesus says in Matthew five that he came to fulfill everything about the law and the prophets. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. We should we should all uh, be able to agree about that. I I think. And and so, (laughs) in Deuteronomy ten verse sixteen, God says, "Circumcise your hearts, O Israel." How? And what does that mean? Well, it means cut something away from your human nature, like from the human heart, figuratively speaking, uh, uh, your human nature. So there's an internal problem. And, and God had called Israel to himself in order to be like a medical focus group because he was a, he's a good physician, right? And, and he's working with all humanity, which in general, there are a patient population that resists the treatment. <laughs> and so- Even so, to today. Even to today, yeah. oh, there's lots of analogies there. But yeah. the, but so he he called Israel to himself in, in different ways and and said, I want you to receive the treatment, right? There's this really demanding spiritual health regimen. Here are these commandments, and if you do them, you will have health. You will have life. And you'll be able to cut away this thing that has now lodged itself in your human nature because it's part of everyone's human nature. And and by doing that, you'll be partnering with God. And so circumcise your hearts. That phrase and idea gets repeated over and over again. But let's just talk about the Pentateuch, right? Moses, through his long leadership of Israel, realizes you're not going to be able to do this. Like even he himself wasn't able to do that. And and so in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he says, the Lord will circumcise your hearts. There, there'll be some way in which 
God himself does. He, God will resolve the problem of evil within human nature. Why? Well, because he's good and he's got to do it in a good way, a loving way, a way that honors our human partnership. Why? Because he's loving. Why is he that? Because he's triune, right? He's a father, son, and Holy spirit. And so his very nature is love. So, uh, sorry, I, I backed out from scripture into more systematic <laughs> theology, but, the, but you get the idea. The, yeah. This, this um, language was in scripture everywhere. Jeremiah 4, 4, Jeremiah says that Jeremiah 9, uh, 26 and 27, he repeats that circumcise your hearts or the heart is uncircumcised. And then later in Jeremiah 31, God will write his law in your hearts. Ezekiel says it will give you a heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone. Uh, same idea, different idiom, uh, having to do with like the tablets and so forth. But, but I mean, the, the same idea, David in Psalm 51 says, create for me a clean heart because you want truth in the inmost being. So uh, all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, there's, there's a call out to God to resolve this problem in us. It's not God. I re we recognize you're angry. Could you, could you please pour your anger out on someone else? <laughs> there's nothing like that yeah. and that, that's not what the prophets wanted the prophets wanted for the underlying problem to be healed and so jesus comes along and quotes that sometimes he says like all the problems come from the human heart and and then in um uh at his transfiguration he shows that the impact of his faithfulness is showing up right? It's human nature in himself is being transfigured. It's being glorified. It's being, it's becoming transparent mm. to the love of the father by the power of the Holy spirit. And then through his death and resurrection, he finalizes that movement. Paul in Romans two says, what does it mean to be a, a true Jew? It's to be circumcised of heart by the spirit. Right. Yeah. And, and then in Romans six, six, uh, that our old self died in Christ. And uh, Romans 8.3, what the law was in, unable to do, weakened as it was by the flesh of Israel, right? because it, the health regimen was good. It's not bad. It, I mean, and also that the law, God did not give the law simply to like condemn Israel. Right. He Otherwise, Paul would have said, for the law was powerful because it worked against the flesh of us. But no, he says the law was good, and it, it, but it was unable to partner, to be fully partnered with because of the weakness of the flesh of the Israelites. Yeah. And so what did God do? God did it. He, he condemned sin in the flesh of Christ. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How? But by coming as Jesus and Jesus never sinning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he, yeah. he, Jesus pressed faithfulness into his humanity. And so he shared in our fallen humanity that we might share in his healed humanity. Yeah. I will say for those listening, I'll, I'll link to this in the transcripts and maybe even in the show notes, there's a six part series there. Um, but as I was scrolling through, you asked at the beginning, yeah, that was the first thing that popped into my mind of there was that just the title itself. Um, you know, where you're like, wait, what? No, 
I'm, I'm right. upset already. I haven't read it yet, and I'm upset already. <laughs> anyway, um, so and then you said another thing about Frodo and the Lord of the Rings and that type of stuff. So um, as I read some of your uh, words, and you, you've done some other lectures or books or PDFs or whatever you want to call it on like, um, you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and a lot of the work of C.S. Lewis. Uh, you've done some stuff um, with Harry Potter and a little That's bit right. of Atona. And and so I, I'm curious, do you, would you say that a, another way to talk about atonement theory would be the atonement of the hero's journey or a theology of the hero's journey? If, talking about Joseph Campbell, because you have to be familiar with that. Um, yes. But I always find a lot of theological implications of call and response, you change, you go over a, 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 prep, a precipice, you know, something that you need yes. help for, and then you come back a different person, um, which kind of relates to what you said a minute ago of we're human beings and human becomings, which is just like an endless circle of just... Or is that a bad way to paraphrase some of the work that you've done there? Because not, not a lot of people will do, you know, the Bible and Harry Potter together. Matter of fact, depending on your denomination, you're not allowed to read Harry Potter. Um, that's right. So, that's, um, am that's I exactly. am I am I putting correlations there that are maybe incorrect, or what, what would you say to that? The atonement of the hero's journey is exactly it, because now, I mean, Joseph Campbell's work is interesting, but it, but essentially, there there are two types of stories: linear stories and circular stories. And so, in circular stories, there is no happy ending ever, right? It just uh, you you wind up depressed. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's just Black Mirror over and over. You begin the yeah. show, it's interesting. At the end, you're like, I can't. That was an hour that hurt me. Right, right. And, you know, maybe it's like, uh, okay, I guess I learned something, but uh, <laughs> I feel sad. Yeah. Um, versus a linear story is, it, it, it is the hero's journey. Uh, and in a linear story, there's good defeats evil in some way as opposed to in a circular story, good and evil are either locked in eternal battle. And so there's never a real resolution. And, and then the stories start to feel totally repetitive mm. um, or, or good and evil are actually the same thing as in many Eastern religions. I mean, uh, Hinduism and I, Buddhism, I, I had some Buddhist background in my family. And, and so that was a real concern. Like, well, th there's never really been a, a social justice movement that arises out of Hinduism or Buddhism. Why is that? Well, because you, you have to have real hope um, and a hope of good triumphing over evil that you want to participate in. And, and so the Abrahamic traditions of at least that framework of good triumphs over evil in some way, that th those are the world changing um, paradigms. Yeah. And so yeah. now, but if you do have a linear story, or if you claim to have one, then the issue is, does it make sense? Like, who's the villain then? What Or what is the problem that needs to be fixed? And then who's the real hero? So, and uh, just to make a long story short, I mean, Judaism was the first uh, linear story in history. Uh, Thomas Cahill talks about this in The Gifts of the Jews. And so the Jesus story is is really the only understanding of that that i think fully makes sense that you can have a loving god who is who loves us and didn't cause the the problem but he figures out a way to still be the hero and overcome the villain by by actually providing a way for the villain to be transformed mm. and, and that's us yeah. uh, so 
it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone avails themselves uh, themselves of that uh, opportunity, but the love is consistent, right? The, from from God, and so Jesus steps into human nature in order to fix the problem of human nature. And, and so every other linear story, I think, externalizes the problem of evil, makes it not really a part of human nature. Mm-hmm. And so it's part of society or it's part of laws or, you know, European colonialism made it, uh, well, it's a problem of other people's cultures. And so we, if they just change their cultures, then they would be better. Or if Adam Smith, right, talks about the wealth of nations, like it starts here in England. And if everyone did things our way, we would be fine. This undergirds the idea that we could just put democracy in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and all the problems will be fixed. Well, it's always worked. It seems to always work every time we've tried it. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Good track record. There. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the idea the the basic idea is those are actually parodies of the Christian story, right? Because it's there there has been a solution that has been worked out somewhere. In this case, in someone in Jesus of Nazareth. And we then become missionaries in order to tell the story and to participate in the working out of that story. That's what colonialism is in, a, in the key. It's transposed in the, into the key of a parody and it's externalized the problem as a social system and um, other people's social systems need to change. In any case, the, uh, the, the hero's journey coming back to that is absolutely true and um uh jesus retells everything that was good about the uh, the the heroes of the scriptures uh but fills in all for all of their failures yeah right and so he uh this is a dynamic that is um that is common in stories and and we should recognize it like uh in Star Wars, here's another common one, because George Lucas consulted with Joseph Campbell. And, and so Luke Skywalker has to retell the story of Anakin Skywalker, right? Compare Empire Strikes Back and what what's what the second movie? I forget. Mm, the, the second but, prequel? Um, I can't remember. Yeah. You're talking about the, the, the second set when I was, yeah. Right. The ones is that nobody Attack likes. Of Clones or? I think it is Attack of the Clones because Phantom Menace is the first one. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so if you watch um, the duel, like the great duel in each of these movies, what is it? It's Luke in Empire in the dark, battling with Darth Vader. He's wielding a blue lightsaber. Darth Vader's wielding a red lightsaber. And in the end, um, Luke gets his hand right hand cut off. Well, in episode two, Anakin actually is wielding a blue lightsaber, which is Obi-Wan's, right? His original was green, but... Um, so, so now he's wielding blue. He cuts the light power, the, the power, so all descends into darkness. And he's fighting Count Dooku, wielding the red lightsaber. And they do the same moves, the same reflections on their faces. And in the end, uh, Anakin gets his right hand cut off. Hmm. Why is this happening? Well, it's because Luke has to step into the story of Anakin Skywalker in order to retell it, but... Uh, but succeed where his father had failed, right? He has to resist the temptation to fall to the dark side. 
And because he's able to do that, he can redeem his father and his father's story. Well, Jesus retold Israel's origin story. Why? Because Israel blew it from the start, right? I mean, they go through water and then wilderness and come to a mountain. Well, Jesus comes through water and then wilderness for 40 days and then comes to a mountain. But he is successful. He's faithful at um, fighting, at resisting the temptation and burning the commandments of God into his human nature. He is the one who is circumcising his heart. Mm. He's a he's a true Israelite who is fulfilling the law. Mm. So, and why does he have to do this? Because, well, because the story needed to be corrected. Yeah. And it, it would be similar as, you know, in principle, if, um, if Jesus <laughs> got on a, it was in England and sailed across the Atlantic uh, to North America, to, to Plymouth, Massachusetts, in a ship called the Mayflower, and got off and, and started to treat the Native Americans there kindly and fairly, um, and what would he be doing? He would be re-embodying the, the origin story of the United States, yeah. but doing it faithfully. And, and why would he need to do that? Well, because the we story... <laughs> got started wrong right there yeah. were flaws woven in at, at the at the beginning and so you know ultimately jesus is a new adam that's the language of, of paul in romans 5 and and first corinthians 15 the, the the idea that he he retells adam and eve's story faithfully not yeah. just israel's but he goes all the way back there uh in order to to do what they should have done but didn't yeah which is to give their human nature over to God and receive life into themselves. So yes, that is, uh, that, that's a great way to put it. The yeah. hero's journey. Earlier you said retributive justice versus restorative justice. And yes. um, I think that we inherently understand retributive justice just by way of living where we live here in the United States. Like that's, that's just the default. And so I think sometimes we don't even realize it, but if, if things were to blink, and the way that we see justice was more aligned to what you call it earlier, a healing atonement theory. Um, yep. I can't remember it all, so I have to take, I have to cheat and take notes. Um, what would what would change? So we all know what today looks like, you know, with the way that we do prisons, the way that we do courtrooms, the way that we hold people to account for decisions that they've made that break the the rules of society that um, you know are are the way that they are um, for. There, there are many ways that you could go with that as well. But what would change like overnight if if our country and our churches said, no, 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 we're doing it a new way. We misunderstood um, what needed to be circumcised, and we thought it was you people. And instead, it's something different because we're no longer going to cut away humans from the body of Christ We're going and, and lock them away somewhere. We're going to do a new thing. What would change? Like, What would that look like? Um. It, if you're talking about criminal justice reform, it, it or any of it, really, yeah, yeah, that that's the that that is a really important place to start. Uh, although I I would also say you know we could come back to this that it it really should affect a whole bunch of other areas of life. It should affect our housing policy, our mm -hmm. interaction with uh, the land, and our ecology. So because the the bigger issue that restorative justice raises is well, what does restoration mean? Like what 
type of relationship should we have with one another? Um, not just when someone does something wrong, but just in general. And so uh, w- w- how are we responsible to God and one another uh, in, in that paradigm? And uh, th- this raises bigger questions. But criminal justice reform is a good place to start because independently of biblical scholarship, this, this question emerged, uh, well, actually, uh, it has deep roots, but um, obviously we have a mass incarceration problem here in the United States mm-hmm. uh, because our, our, princi- our primary principle of justice is meritocratic retributive. And so the idea there is uh, it's offender-centric. If, if I do something wrong, then something wrong, something should be done to me that's proportional or, or whatever, hopefully proportional. And in restorative justice, it's victim-centric. It's not offender-centric. And so the, the first question, if, if I do something to hurt you, the first question is, what do you need in order to move on and to, to recover from the harm and, and heal? And uh, how can I participate in that? So I, as the offender, and there may be other, uh, you know, stakeholders like uh, the community at large. So restorative justice asks a fundamentally different question. And it, it does mean that there are consequences for the offender. And, and so let, I want to clear up that as a misconception. Like some people think, oh, it's, it's go, it goes light on the offender. No, it doesn't. It, it often is emotionally more challenging for the offender mm. because it makes me grow or it invites me to, it places a demand on me um, to, to do something that draws me out of myself. And so I could point to examples of that. But, it, but essentially, part of the reason why um, this is, uh, being talked about here in the U.S. is, well, because our system is bonkers right now. And and also because restorative justice has been tried in other countries in different forms, and it's been shown to to actually produce things that we, we say we want. So, for instance, in uh, Africa and also Northern Europe, um, you know, in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa and also similar things, Uganda, Rwanda, post-conflict situations where you can't like physically lock up all the people that did something wrong because you bankrupt your country. So how how do you bring closure to uh, folks? Well, you have uh, victim-offender dialogue, and I wouldn't say they're done or that, that that's the only thing to do, but that's a step. Um, in Scandinavian countries, they have uh, implemented restorative justice paradigms so that uh, people, offenders do go to prison, um, although sometimes they, they do more community service. But if they go to prison, uh, they are, are treated humanely. Uh, there's, there, there's more <clears throat> limitations on what can happen in prison, like overcrowding or things like people in Germany, they bring their own clothes and they, they, they dress normally um, because they're, uh, they're, they're preparing to re-engage society in a, in, in a new way um, already as citizens, but, but with an awareness of what they have done and, and they, they have a 
social worker or an equivalent or work with a psychologist. Sometimes they're already structuring victim offender dialogue meetings while they're in prison, but essentially, and, and sometimes they're learning a skill, but essentially this has been shown to reduce recidivism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have shorter prison sentences and, and, and everything we say we want. Yeah. And so, you know, like Sweden, has had the problem of they need to convert former prisons into condominiums because they don't, they no longer have as many prisoners. Like, wouldn't that be a good problem yeah, to have? Yeah. L- so, less profitable though than our system here in the United States. Cause yes, we lock people away for money. Um, right. Yeah. What would it and mean for, for some of our other? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We out, we abolish slavery except for people that we incarcerate and then we'll just incarcerate the same people and we'll call it solved. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, what would that cause for some of our communities, though, unrelated to um, criminal justice reform? So you you alluded to it. It would it would do some other things. So what would a restorative atonement theory kind of flesh out for the way that we live in community with one another? Like what would what would be different there? Housing policy would be very different. So, for, for instance, um, God has a housing first policy. Right. He built the Garden of Eden and then put Adam and Eve there. So we have a meritocratic housing policy where it's prove that prove to me or prove to us that you're a productive citizen Mm. uh, and that you make enough money that you deserve to live here. And so the gated community is is the most extreme example of that. But it, but essentially, this comes from John Locke's theory, the meritocratic theory of land conquest, that if you're more productive than the last guy, then you can take his land. And that was deployed by English settlers and, you, you know, all kinds of people against Native Americans uh, by misrepresenting Native Americans. But it's essentially that idea to really took hold here. And so uh, we, we don't have a really good housing policy, even though the pandemic has now linked public health with housing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how do you tell people to shelter in place or to stay at home if they don't have a home? Yeah. And, and we've allowed BlackRock and now private equity firms to become America's landlord and continue driving the price of housing up because now we have to compete uh, not only with one another for scarce commodity like housing, but um, also with private equity firms. And this goes back to, uh, it's a form of plantation capitalism, which wanted to divide the labor force into white and black so that uh, the the elites didn't have to pay a lot of wages, right? Because if you make labor com- compete with one another and break up into factions, then that's that's what you get. Um, you, you get to pay low wages because they're competing with one another. So that's really what how race started. And, and then uh, California's realtors and, and others in a book called Freedom to Discriminate by Gene Slater and, and then uh, Richard Rothstein's Color of Law. Those are just must reads. Uh, and, and talks about America's housing policy. We, we took the model of dividing the labor force from plantation capitalism, and we mapped it onto residential segregation. And once that's in place, um, then all the differential outcomes follow, right? People's experience of schooling is different based on their zip code, where they live. Uh, people's experience of policing is different. 
So housing policy, let's say in Germany or in in Austria, like uh, the city of Vienna, I've really appreciated, there's one article in Forbes uh, about Germany's housing policy, and there's a video done by the Gravel Institute on Vienna's housing policy, um, which talks about how they think about housing more as an investment in people, and it's part of the labor market. Why is that? Well, for a couple reasons. Obviously, it's because children are part of the future labor market, and they are educated in communities, in neighborhoods, and schools are tied to neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So it's an investment in people. So they want to make things more equal. Uh, they, they want to control, you know, how unequal things can get. And, and that's really important. And then secondly, they don't want people sinking into sinking into debt because as we learned in 2008, 2009, if, if I get a job, you know, in some other city, uh, I might want to take that job, but if my mortgage is underwater, can't. I can't sell. Yeah. And so I'm stuck. So the economy becomes dysfunctional even to itself, even in this present generation, where people are not flexible enough to move, we have become, because of white supremacy, uh, become invested in the idea that uh, our primary asset should be our home, which is preserved by neighborhood property values, which is preserved by the perception of where this house is and who lives among in this area. Yeah. And, and so we have created an equality problem, a, a justice problem, and also a sustainability problem, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because we've made car dependent suburbs that are yeah. unsustainable. Yeah. And, and yeah. so housing policy would be a really good place to start. Mm-hmm. Housing is something that everyone needs. Your answer there reminds me so much of the two questions that I ask of the people before we started recording. Um, yes. I, as you're talking, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, because as I told you earlier, like I need the neighbor's kids to be good and do well. And when I say be good, I mean like flourish. Um, yeah. Like, and because they're going to take care of me one day uh, as I'm supposed to take care of them right now. Like that's. That's right. how it works. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, last question, kind of existential, because why not? <laughs> what, what, what? what? You know, go ahead. Although, although you know, you just a few days ago, Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin said it's not society's job to take care of other people's children. It's like, what? We do. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, of course. Of course it is. Like, of course it is. Like, um, I forget who said it. Um, it's somebody that's been on the show or I read it somewhere. I've, I read so many books. Um, we're talked about like faith as a politic and not a politic as a party, like as a, as a polis, as a people. Yes. And that yes. sometimes Mako, like, I can't do this anymore. Like I am, I'm done with God today. Like I am, I'm, I, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. I can't do it. And in community, you, you, you basically say, it's fine. I have all of those burdens. Let me carry them for a minute. It's right. fine. Um, and right. when you're ready to come back to them, I'm still here and you're still in a good spot. I've made sure that you're good. And so when you're ready to, when you're in a better spot, here's your faith. And it's just as healthy as it ever was. And I'm probably saying that badly, but like, that's what it is to live in community with one another of, you need something. Okay. I can do that. And then one day I will break down and I will need something. And there's no quid pro quo. We just live here together. Like, that's what we do. 
right. that's what it is to be human. Um, and I'm probably badly paraphrasing three different people together because there's so much junk in my head. But how could it not be my problem to take care of the people that I live next to? I don't know how that could not be true. Exactly. I, I exactly. I mean, you might start a small business and want to hire someone besides your own kids. Yeah. Yeah. And expect them to be educated enough to do well at the job so that I could then right. um, redirect those resources into the community. You know, like like exactly. that park needs to be rebuilt. Oh, your kids use the park. I'll pay for it. It's not a big deal. It's, not, it's fine. Right. Let's go play. Right. Let's go play. Because when people laugh, they're healthy. Um, let's make the right. kids laugh. Anyway. Anyway. Um, yeah. I'm not voting for that guy, but I don't live there. So if you were to try to garb or robe words around um, what the divine is, what is that for you? What the divine is? Yeah, if you were trying to like wrap words around that, what is that? Like, what is God? Oh, what is God? Well, he is uh, love. He is a community. He is unity. He is, and, uh, he is family. He is friendship. What that means is um, those are those are English words that describe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because in order, we can't just say God is love without persons anchoring that love. Uh, otherwise, if you if you have a God who is what is the right word? Um, tr- who is not tripersonal you know, a monad, right? Uh, uh, or a, just a, a big dot. <laughs> <laughs> um, then, you know, what is that God? Well, it, it, we don't know. We, we're not really sure because if that God didn't have to create it, well, you know, did God have that kind of God uh, have to create, then, then that God didn't have to also love. But even... With the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have love and all these other things, um, beauty, goodness, and uh, even before that God created. And so God is these things, right? It, 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 it's a predicate nominative in, in, if we're thinking about God is love. That, and and we're, we're trying to understand, like, uh, what does it mean? It, it's not simply that God does love or God happens to love. I mean, I happen to love, but I happen to do a lot of other things too because I'm a fallen human being. Um, and that, that doesn't make me the most consistent person all the time. Mm. And so for, for us to say, as 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love, that God, God that is his nature. And so everything God does has to flow out of that nature and is an expression of that nature, that makes a lot of sense to me from um, <clears throat> how, how this all fits together and how we can have a coherent story of good triumphing over evil and so forth and, and why the atonement must be a healing atonement and, and why a, a loving good God has found a way to heal human nature in a loving and good way by never overriding our, our, our partnership mm-hmm. um, with him and why justice has to be restorative because in the, in the end, you know, his love and goodness have to be the goal and, and also the process. So 
So I, I don't know if that answers your, no. your question or gets at the gist of it, but uh, yeah, that's my favorite question. Cause the answers are all over the place. And then, um, and, and I love it. So, and you don't know this, Mako, but but now you will. So, I take all of those answers, and I mix them together into an episode that has none of my voice in it at the end of the year, except for to say, I asked all these people this question, and here's it is, and wow. it always ends up being something beautiful, just like back to back to back of tr- people trying to say what God is. It ends up being, I don't know, it ends up it's it's powerful um, in a way that I can't recreate if that makes any sense um i love it i love it so that's it's one of my favorite questions because the answers are so all over the place um and i love it so no it's fine answer perfectly answered i look forward to that yeah um people want to dive more into what you're doing because they've decided to you know just just try to grow a little bit where would you want people to do or go to to kind of follow along to the work that you're doing where would you direct people easiest thing is the our webpage www.anastasiscenter a n a s t a s i s gotta make sure i get spelled it anastasiscenter.org and um, people can can find ways to connect there uh, i'm on facebook twitter and instagram so if, if people prefer that although i am i am 49 and i'm i'm not the most regular person there but um but but i do put out content there so um if if folks want to subscribe to the blog uh right now i'm i'm in a series on emotional development and atonement theology Mm. like how does the one impact how does atonement theology namely penal substitution versus medical substitution or healing atonement uh how do these theories affect us emotionally in different ways I think that's a, a really, really important area, especially as we try to be trauma-informed and, and yeah. emotionally healthy. So, Yeah, excellent, excellent. Thank you for coming on. Um, and if you're willing, you don't have to say yes, but um, I, after I finish reading your book on abortion, if you're willing, let's do it again. Why not? I would love to do that, and I would really appreciate it, Seth. Uh, I think these these are really important times for us to revisit the issue, even though people think it's only... And it, it, that we only get to dead ends by talking about abortion. I the the book, as I've researched it, it's it's far from that. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Thank you again for your time this morning. Very much so. Thanks so much. Now, I haven't added it up. But there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of podcasts on the internet. And I am humbled that you continue to download this one. If this is your first time here, please know that there are transcripts of these shows. Not always in real time, but I do my best. And if you go back in the logs, you can find transcripts for pretty much any episode that you'd like. The show is recorded and edited by me, but it is produced by the patron supporters of the show. That is one of the best, if not the best way that you can support the show. If you get anything at all out of these episodes, if you think on them or if you, you know, you're out and about and you tell your friends about it or, hey, mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, boss, pastor, here's what I heard. What are your thoughts on that? If this is helping you in any way, and it is helping me, consider supporting the show in that manner. It is extremely inexpensive, but collectively, it is so very much helpful. Now for you... I pray that you are blessed and you know that you're cherished and beloved. 
We'll talk soon. Some of a grand design above us, meant to follow divine instructions, to consider this final verse to be my Maya Copa. I heard the advice from others that to ask the question why it's subversive. But if my body's the temple, why is my mind always undermine the structure and design destruction? Cause when you realize that thin line between truth and lies is fine and subtle, it gets hard to find a substance, and you look foolish when you try to touch it. But I'd rather die for something than live a life of nothing but Bible thumping. When my time is up, it's the Lamb's book of life that judges if I despise the loving. Instead of living covered in our filth, we should think of something other than ourselves. And it starts by coming to the well. Be clean again. Clean again.